Now, if you'll open your Bible to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, as we continue our exposition through this uh, gospel, the gospel of Matthew, penned by uh, one of the Lord's disciples, apostle Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. We begin this morning at verse 14, verse 14 down through verse 17, eighth chapter of Matthew. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. You know the title this morning for this message, Jesus, Savior from Sin and Sickness. A character on a popular primetime television show ironically said, while viewing the body of a murdered crisis manager, that is a problem solver, this, some things aren't fixable. The biggest and most consequential problems in human existence are not fixable by human beings. Sin, disease, demons, and death defy a permanent resolution by humanity. There are no think tanks that can provide answers. There are no scientific discoveries or any in the pipeline that will yield solution to these problems that I just listed. These problems are spiritual problems and they require a spiritual solution. They require a spiritual fix, if you will. And there is one. There is a, to be more accurate, a spiritual fixer. Jesus Christ is the fixer. Because of his authority and power, the eternally consequential problems of sin and death are fixed by him. The healings and deliverances that are recorded in the New Testament give unimpeachable evidence to his power and authority, his ability to fix those profound problems that confront mankind. He can fix any issue. There is nothing beyond his capability. There's nothing beyond his wisdom. There's nothing beyond his authority. Jesus is more than able to fix the problem. Now what we have here in this text before us this morning is a preview of his coming kingdom. When his kingdom comes in all its fullness, troubles like these will dissipate and eventually be utterly resolved forever. So what we see here in what I just read and what you read along with me is a preview, a foreshadowing, if you will, of what is to come. And we see the first thing here under the first heading, a solitary healing in verses 14 and 15. From the moment we are born, we begin the march to the grave. 
We encounter and experience sicknesses. We have diseases. Some of them lead to death. There are disabilities and deformities uh, among human beings, and all these are telltale signs or effects of the fall of man. The fall of man, man's first disobedience to God, and the continuing effects across all humanity since then. The effects are universal. All men everywhere experience the effects of sin and disobedience. There are no exceptions. No one is exempt. This universality testifies to the unity of the human race, no matter where a person is from, whether they're in Shanghai or Timbuktu, Grand Rapids or Norman. We all are under the curse of sin and death. There is no escaping it for anyone. In the verses under our first heading, A Solitary Hearing, we see the effects of the fall in an individual life. And we see what transpires. Jesus comes into Peter's home, his house. And an infection in the body it caused his mother-in-law to be debilitated. In fact, it's a fever. The result of the fever, uh, the infection, the result of the Infection, the fever is. Luke chapter 4, verse 38 tells us it's a high fever. You need to understand, in that day when people uh, became sick, many times they just had to go on with life. They just couldn't stop. But this was so serious that it caused her to be bedridden. She couldn't do the things that she would want to do for her family and for all who would be at her house on this particular day. There were no antibiotics. No big farmer. Simon Peter, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, James and John, two other followers of Christ, spoke to Jesus about her condition according to Mark chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. And that they knew Jesus could fix this situation because they had just come from a synagogue service, according to Mark's gospel. And in that synagogue service, Jesus was teaching authoritatively. And there was a demon-possessed man in the synagogue service where people had gathered to worship God. Here was a man who was demon-possessed. And Jesus stopped in the middle of his teaching, and he cast out the demon. He displayed his supernatural authority over that evil being. So they witnessed Simon Peter and James and John and Andrew. They witnessed this display of power in church. Can you imagine you sitting in church? And a demon-possessed person is there, and only for illustration purposes, the preacher cast out the demon. That's what they saw. Witnessing that display of power and authority, and possibly others, the men wanted Jesus to help Peter's mother-in-law. So he comes into a house, Dr. Jesus. And there she is, a woman, obviously. I say that for this reason. Every morning in Judaism, Jewish males would pray first thing this, quote, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. 
women who are second-class citizens. But you need to understand, social status, gender, race, made no difference whatsoever to Jesus. We've seen this already when a leper came who was an outcast, and what did Jesus do? He touched him and healed him. We saw this with the centurion who was a Gentile who had a slave on the verge of death. And what did Jesus do? He, by his will, he healed the boy. Jesus had no problems with that. And here's a woman. What they viewed in Judaism in their tradition and all of that, that made no difference whatsoever to the Lord Jesus Christ. His love and compassion is extended without regard to those things. His message and ministry were for all regardless of disadvantages in life and advantages in life. So Jesus comes to the woman's bedside. You see it there in verse 15. And he touched her hand. Here again, Jesus violates human tradition of the Jews. Jewish tradition forbade touching persons with many kinds of fever. Jesus paid no attention to that. He touched her hand. Perhaps he wanted to signify by that act that it's he who is bringing the healing. After a while touching her hand, according to Luke chapter 4, verse 39, Jesus spoke words of rebuke. He rebuked the fever. He spoke a word of authority, and the fever instantaneously left. In fact, you need to understand, the fever was the effect. So when Jesus rebuked the fever, in effect, he was rebuking the infection that had filled her body and had caused her to be deathly sick, and it left too. Now, you need to understand something. There is no natural explanation for this. This was a miraculous work of God incarnate. Fever left. You'll notice something here in the text. And she got up and waited on him. Hmm. Why is that significant? Fevers have the tendency, when, even when they're gone, to leave you weak. You know how it is. It takes you a while to get over sickness. You, you don't just instantaneously get up and go about your business. This text tells us something about the great power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He healed her, and it was as if she had no sickness whatsoever, and she got up and immediately began to wait on him. She was not weak any longer. She didn't need to be in bed any longer. She got up with her strength and vigor and began to serve him. She was instantaneously restored. There were no lingering effects from the high fever. It's amazing. And it makes you wonder with an act like that and having heard about Jesus and who he is, that may have been the point when she trusted him as her Savior. I don't know. It makes you wonder. But what is particularly interesting here in this text it says at the bottom of the verse, you see it there, waited on him. I've said that twice already. It's the third time. Waited on him. She served him. There were other people in the house after synagogue service that let out at noon that needed her attention. But guess what? She waited on him. She provided food, no doubt, for him. It's miraculous healing. 
of this woman. Then in verse 16, we move to a broader reality here. Mass deliverances and healings. You notice it says, first clause here, when evening came. The phrase signifies that the Sabbath was over. According to Jewish reckoning, the day ended at 6 p.m. The day having ended, the skies began to darken. And the residents of Capernaum began to transport their sick relatives and friends to Jesus. They had heard. Because Jesus had been in Capernaum. He had been doing miracles. And it spread like wildfire. He, he had cast out a demon in the synagogue service. So everybody knew about it. It, it traveled faster than maybe even the internet. <laughs> News like that. And according to Mark chapter 1, verse 33, the whole city had gathered at the door of Peter's house. Can you imagine it's dark and all of these people at Peter's house in the front door and they knew Jesus was in there and they have all their sick relatives, their demon-possessed people there and they knew he could fix them. You notice in the text there were many who were demon-possessed. Demons are fallen angels. Demons are Beings who followed Satan in his rebellion against the Most High God. They're evil beings. They're supernatural beings. They're invisible to the naked eye. They're, they are spirits. And they're intent on opposing God and Christ and God's people and humanity in general. That's who these beings are. So there are many of them had infiltrated the bodies of these people there in Capernaum. They have great power, demons do. They have greater power than we have as humans. They have the power to indwell human beings and animals. And remember, the very first demonic in, uh, inhabitation was in Genesis chapter 3, right? When Satan, in his power, he invaded the body of a serpent to deceive our first mother Eve. They enter into a person and live in their bodies as though their body is their own house. In fact, Jesus likened their indwelling of a human body to living in a house in Matthew chapter 12, verse 44. And when they do, what they, they do is take control. That's why it's like a house, because they're in charge of the house, like you're in charge of your house. And you rule your house and you do what you want to do in your house. That's what demons would do with people that they possessed and they hold a person's soul captive for hell the, the goal is to destroy them spiritually they wreak havoc in their life they'll inflict sickness uh, muteness deafness blindness they'll do all of those things to human beings they are ruthless person so indwelt will do their evil will and demonized persons are powerless to free themselves from their demonic captors. <laughs> but may I add a side, a side here? This just sets things up perfectly for Jesus. 
because they have power over these human beings and sets the stage for Jesus to demonstrate his utter superiority over the kingdom of Satan. He alone can set them free with this authoritative word. Well, notice what it says in verse 16, and he cast them out, cast out the spirits with a word. Come out. And you know what they would do? Come out. Because they knew who they were confronted by. They knew they were confronted by the Son of God. They knew they were confronted by their creator who created them as holy angels and they defected. They knew who they were. They knew who Jesus was. They, they shudder when they think about him because they know he is going to consign them to the lake of fire forever. They know he is in utter control. He's sovereign God. And when he speaks, they obey. They don't obey because they want to. They obey because they have to. You remember the instance when uh, they had the legion, Mark 5, I think it is, and they said, can we, can we go to the pigs? <laughs> See, they didn't want to go to the abyss because Jesus could have consigned them to the abyss just like that. So I said, Could you, can we go to the pigs, the swine? And Jesus let them do that. They know who's in charge. And you drill down in this verse and you see something here. When he cast these demons out, the crowd witnessed Jesus' dominion over the demonic powers repeatedly. His absolute dominion was on display. Think about that. Here comes somebody's demon-possessed. Jesus said, come out. Here comes another demon-possessed. Jesus said, come out. And here you are at Peter's house, and you're watching him just cast out demon, 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 demon. They're all coming out, and none of them can resist his power and authority. They had a front row seat, those people in Capernaum that day, watching God in the flesh cast out demonic forces. Whenever there's a contest between deity and the demonic, guess who wins? And this was proof of Jesus' deity and his messiahship. They had much proof of who he is. That's why Jesus said to the people at Capernaum later in Matthew 11, uh, you will not be lifted up to heaven, Capernaum, but you'll be brought down to Hades. Because they had so much light, had so much truth, they had seen so much, and they refused to believe who he is. Jesus' sovereign supernatural power over the spiritual realm now, let me focus on you and me. Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Possession implies ownership. And Christians cannot be owned or possessed by a demon because they are possessed or owned by God. He purchased us. We belong to him. And he ain't sharing us with any demon. We were bought with a price. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. The purchase price was none other, than the, none other than the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He bought us. We belong to him. Moreover, the Holy Spirit resides in Christians. And the Holy Spirit is not going to share his property with demons. Let me expand on this a little further. When you read through the New Testament epistles, you never, ever, ever read anywhere in the epistles in the New Testament of the believers being warned of the possibility of demon possession. You don't find it. You would think if we could be indwelt by demons, the New Testament epistles would warn us about it and tell us what to do, right? The reason there's no warning because it's not going to happen. And there is no case in the New Testament epistles where believers are instructed to cast out demons. None. You say, well, how do we deal with them? Because we sure enough have to, don't we? If you don't realize that you have to, guess what? They've got the one up on you. Ephesians chapter 6, verses uh, 10 through 17 tells us how to deal with demons. They're external to us. They want to undermine us. They want to render us ineffective. They want to uh, create, our, uh, create a situation where our testimony will be tarnished. They want us to sin uh, grievously. They want us to be discouraged. They want us to be defeated. And they work against us, but we're to have on the whole armor of God, are we not? We're to stand firm against the devil and his fellow demons. Let me tell you something. There's no reason in the world for any Christian to be routinely beaten up by the devil. Keep on the whole armor of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. The might of the Lord, that's Jesus Christ's power. We know his power, what he can do against the evil ones because he demonstrates it here in the Gospels. We ought to always be victorious. We can stand firm, not give up any ground to Satan and demons. And Jesus demonstrates his authority and power over the spiritual realm, dealing with this spiritual issue that he fixes. Then you notice at the end of the verse here, final clause, and healed all who were ill. He goes from the spiritual affliction to the physical sicknesses. None remained unhealed. I like that. Be wary of these so-called faith healers. They inevitably leave people unhealed. And the ones they have healed, <laughs> suspect. Jesus had a 100% cure rate. <laughs> Nobody's getting out of here sick today. <laughs> You're all going to be healed. And Jesus, what a wonderful Savior and servant. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve 
and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus, you say, well, how can he just do this? He just constantly served. He's constantly healing because he came to serve. May I apply something? If you're going to be like Jesus, serve. He saw the need and met it. And so he stayed there until every last person was healed. A solitary healing. Mass deliverances and healings. The next and final heading. Future permanent healing. Future permanent healing. Verse 17. Matthew writes, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the Isaiah the prophet. Fulfillment in the sense of a foreshadowing, a preview, even we could say an analogy of what is going to happen in greater fullness in the future when Jesus comes. What he did here in verses 14 through 16 was a preview regarding the healing that will be pervasive when he comes. But you notice what Matthew does. He says here in quoting Isaiah 54, he says he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Let's just talk about this for a moment and how that worked then and how that will work later. He took and carried away them in the sense that he was sympathizing with man's pain. He sympathized with man's mental distress. He sympathized with their physical pain. He sympathized with their sickness. Jesus knows man's heart. He knows the sorrows that we have because of our pains. He knows of the bewilderment that can come over us when we have some problem physically. He understands that. He understands what it is. And the wonder, the wonder about all of this, Jesus is compassionate. You'll read in the scripture how he is compassionate toward those who were sick, those who had disabilities, those who had various problems. And he came into the situation, even at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he wept. Jesus wept. Remember that? He didn't weep because Lazarus was dead because, after all, he's getting ready to raise him. He wept because of the devastation that sin had brought in the life of humanity and particularly his friend. Jesus, even today, is a sympathetic high priest. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Jesus, as I've alluded to it, I'm going to state it again. He saw and felt the destructive power of sin, the root cause, the root cause. To understand the sickness, disease, deformity, all those things that afflict human life. 
the root of it is sin. And Jesus came here to deal with it. You should see something here. Matthew quotes Isaiah. Would you go with me to Isaiah? Isaiah 53. And we'll look at this text. It's about the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I said earlier, he's a servant. Did I not? This is the prophecy of him coming and his substitutionary death on the cross. He's a suffering servant. Isaiah 53. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Let's begin there. Surely our griefs, that can be rendered sicknesses. He himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. The consequence of our sin. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But the esteem was wrong. It wasn't him. For his sin, the next verse tells us. He talks about sickness and pains and all of that. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our, what? Transgressions. And he was crushed for our the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings, we are what? Healed. Healed? Yes, healed from the disease of sin. That's what it means. Jesus was our substitute. He suffered in our room or in our place. This is a prophecy of his coming into the world and dying on a cross in our place. Our transgressions, not his. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his. The chastening from God the Father was for us, for our well-being. Substitute. Now, go with me to First Peter. Peter uses <laughs> that language, First Peter chapter 2. Verse 24 of 1 Peter. He says in verse 24, these words, speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Notice, for by his wounds, you are what? Sure enough. Healed how? Spiritually. From sin. That's what Jesus was forecasting. Uh, Isaiah was forecasting and Jesus gave a preview of. People say, well, there's healing in the atonement. Yes, there is. There is healing in the atonement. But the full benefit of the atonement awaits the future 
We need to get the chronology right. There is healing in the atonement, but not all if it's going to be applied now. The central message of deliverance from sin, that's the point. Not from disease. The central message is the good news about forgiveness, not health. Christ was made sin, not disease, on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He knew no sin, became sin, was made sin, right? He died on the cross for our sins, not our sicknesses. He dealt with, not with the effects or the symptoms. He dealt with the root cause. Furthermore, he dealt with, as Colossians 2 tells us, Satan. Colossians 2 tells us that he disarmed them, Satan and the demons. A mortal wound to the head of Satan, as predicted in Genesis chapter 3. Now let me tell you what's, what's coming. What's coming. In Jesus' millennial kingdom, he's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to judge in righteousness. He's going to deal with all the wicked. And when he's here, at that time, his kingdom on earth, Satan and demons will be bound. Revelation chapter 20. If you'd like to turn there, let me show it to you. When Jesus is ruling on this planet in person, he is going to do something or have done something to say in Revelation chapter 20. Are you there? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There is going to be a dis dismiss from, uh, discharge from heaven. An angel will come and grab Satan and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive, deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Just stop there. A thousand years of no Satan and demons on this, we can't even imagine what that's like. We won't have Satan deceiving uh, political leaders. He won't be on the scene. Satan won't be deceiving people on earth about who Christ is. He won't be on the scene. He'll be bound for a thousand years. And during that time, the curse which we're experiencing now, the sickness and pains and death, all of that will be mitigated. It'll be reduced. The effects of it be reduced. People will live a long time. In fact, it says in Isaiah previewing this, if a person dies at 100 years of age, they'll consider him having been a youth. A centurion today, a centenarian today rather, a centenarian today, we go, oh, let's have a birthday party and, and, and celebrate. They've lived to be 100 years old. During the reign of Jesus on this planet, 100 years old ain't nothing. 
He died at 100? What did he do wrong? He, he violated the word of God. That's why he's gone. The curse is going to ultimately be completely removed in the righteous perfection of the eternal state. It says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. A beautiful city coming out of heaven, compared to a bride. And I heard a, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And where he dwells, God dwells in that tabernacle. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And then you read from here, from verse 1 of chapter 21, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5. And you hear the talk of the eternal state. There won't be a curse any longer death any longer. Verse 5, 4 here tells us this. Let me add something. Uh, even our, our bodies not perishable any longer. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we must put off the perishable and put on the imperishable. What's a perishable body? A body subject to sickness and death. You see, there is benefit of health in the atonement, but it's not now. Christians still die, though they are no longer under the penalty of death because of those sins. They are still subject to physical death because God has not applied all the benefits that were earned by Christ for his people. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26. For this reason, believers today living in a fallen world are still subject to aging and death. Keep that in mind. You're going to keep getting older and you're going to die. Because we're in a fallen world. But the good news is, for Christians, oh death, where is your sting? Sting's gone. Death is just transitioning us to heaven. We just leave here and go there instantaneously from this place to the Father's house. So when you think about um, all of this, about health and death, and do understand you're not living your best life. Amen. <laughs> this is not it. If it doesn't get any better than this, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'd do. Keep in mind, look, think of it like this. We're living in and waiting on the not yet. The not yet things I've read here. And when we get there, it'll be the no longer. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating. What's going to happen for his people. That's our future. We'll be in the Father's presence. He'll be living among him, with him, all the saints, 
and perfection spiritually, perfection spiritually, without even the possibility of sin, sickness, and death. That's where we're headed, folks. That's God's plan for his people. Praise his name. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for what you have in store for us. Thank you for your plan for man whom you save. We pray for those in this place who are not Christians, don't have this hope, this certainty that we as your people have. Bring them to yourself. Save them. And for saints, help us continue to be strengthened by the hope that you've provided for us through your word and your purpose. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.